This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. The United States, you know, Paul and I just talked about some of the, the big headlines. The U.S. setting a new daily record for virus cases uh, up above 70,000. I think it's actually past 77,000, which was the previous high back in July. And we do know during the final debate last night, the presidential debate, both of them talked about, uh, we're talking about Joe Biden and Donald Trump, of course, talking about the COVID-19 virus and the handling of it. I do look forward to this segment every week, and I'm curious to see what he has to say about some of the things that were said at last night's debate. Dr. Ian Lospader is back with us, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone in New York City. Ian, good to have you back. How are you? Okay, thanks as always for having me. Happy Friday. Hope you guys are all doing well. Uh, yeah, interesting points raised at the debate for sure. Well, listen, I always, you know, I, I go to the experts like yourself to say, okay, we heard about the handling of the virus and, you know, whether it was we're doing good, we're not doing good. How would you assess how we are doing and how we have done when it comes to COVID 19 in the United States? So I do think we're heading in for uh, some challenging times. We know global cases are up, second wave, third wave, depending on how you want to count it. Uh, people are starting to move, you know, more indoors. And, um, you know, we don't have a cure, and uh, the vaccine uh, should be very promising. And I uh, want to relate some uh, yet unpublished information about that, which I think is encouraging. So I think we we have some help. Uh, on the on the front in the near future, but it's not tomorrow. And I think over the next few months, it's going to be very challenging during that gap uh, between getting uh, vaccines approved and, you know, an increase in cases as people go back to school, as they go indoors. Uh, so I think it, it is going to be a challenging time. And, and I think we have to uh, do our best to be safe and be prudent, which really includes uh, you know, masks and, and distancing and uh, uh, being prudent, taking control of our lives, losing weight. We talked about risk factors mm-hmm. for bad outcomes with, uh, you know, with uh, SARS-CoV-2 and, and, and COVID-19. And that is getting your weight down, getting your blood sugars if you're type 2 diabetic under control, uh, perhaps vitamin D and uh, in low doses. So we need uh, to take control of uh, our environment. And also be careful as kids come back from school. We know that uh, a number of uh, young people may be asymptomatic, and so we do have to be careful, ideally, if people can be tested before they visit elderly relatives, either with the antigen spit test or a nasal swab. There are a lot more available. You know, all of those things will help a bit. Um, And the vaccine data, I think we can talk about, uh, I think is very encouraging. So let's let's go there, doctor. Um, get an update on the vaccine. We've had some starts, some stops, some starts again. What's the latest from your perspective? So I was at a conference, um, uh, a, a video conference last week, and a lot of the and this uh, one of the speakers was really the head of our um, 
uh, infectious disease department and, and head of a lot of the vaccine trials that are being done. And it does look like the preliminary data shows that the vaccines really give you very high neutralizing antibody titers. You know, this all has yet to be published, but it does seem very encouraging uh, that the vaccines should be pretty effective in uh, giving you those high antibody titers. And also, it does seem that T cells, which are really longer-acting memory uh, cells, uh, also do seem to have higher levels. We don't know exactly how this will, you know, translate into hospitalizations and deaths. And, you know, none of the studies are really powered to, to tell us that. All they're going to tell us is, does this really reduce the acquisition of COVID? But I think that's a very important step. And um, uh, so I'm very encouraged by the vaccine data, but obviously the trials have to be completed and uh, then it has to be FDA approved and then it has to be disseminated. So unfortunately, we're still several months away from, you know, really getting those vaccines out. So, okay. I love this is because I, I love talking to you because this is what I learn things. Sorry, I can't even get it out. It's Friday. But thank you, Google, because I had to uh, Google antibody titer, T-I-T-E-R. Explain that, that for <laughs> explain that for our audience. Sure. So, you know, we we measure uh, the body's response, uh, which are typically uh, B cells make these uh, proteins called antibodies, and they're uh, the body's response to foreign invaders, whether bacteria, viruses, uh, fungi, or, you know, th th that's the normal response. And typically, they bind to uh, the invader with a foreign uh, object, and uh, that can neutralize them and then allow other cells to digest them and rid the body, you know, of this. So what you want is the vaccine to encourage the, 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 the humans to form antibodies so they bind to any COVID-19 virus that comes in. And typically these uh, vaccines do a variety of ways, whether the so-called viral vectors or, or messenger RNA, like the um, you know Moderna and Pfizer trials. And what that does, these are uh, materials that go into the cell, messenger RNA. It, it makes spike protein, which is the common corona, that means crown, those, so those spike proteins uh, are made, just that, not the active virus. So no one is going to get COVID-19 from these vaccines. It just causes your cells to make the the worrisome or problematic um, spike. And when antibodies form to that, those should block the live virus if you get it from attaching to cells and causing damage. And that's really what they're right. trying to measure. How high is the response? And it actually looks like you get higher responses than people who've had the COVID-19. That's so, interesting. Yeah. Yeah talking about the science of a vaccine, and that's a key issue. Then there's a whole issue of how do you produce and distribute these vaccines? And then there's the, I guess, a political slash ethical slash distribution question of who gets the uh, vaccines and, right. and what time frame, what, what order. Dr. Ian Lusbader uh, is with us for a second uh, discussion, your second segment. He's a clinical associate professor of medicine at the NYU. NYU Langone Medical Center. He joins us on the phone from New York City. So Dr. Lusbader, again, the science, you're the science guy, and we have a lot of smart scientists and 
physicians working on this, and I think there's a high level of confidence that we will get something in uh, you know, some recent amount of time. What is your sense of, of how this will be distributed and, 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 and how's it all going to work? Are we all going to have uh, equal access to it? How do you think that will play out? No question. The uh, sort of the ethics of this and what's the most efficient approach is definitely a challenge. You know, we, as we talk about, we haven't had a pandemic like this in in a hundred years. So all of these things are are sort of learning as you go. And, um, you know, it's my hope that we pull together, you know, America in the past is always with outside challenges have always worked together and supported everyone. And uh, hopefully we can you know, continue to do that by uh, being smart and, 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 and having prudent behavior. So I think uh, certainly we have to see who wants to um, uh, take the vaccine. Hopefully a large number of people will want to do that. And I suspect people on the front line, the healthcare workers, will be the first to right. have this offered to them. And the elderly people who are vulnerable and who really should not be out going back to school and going out to dinner. If you are overweight or older or have high blood pressure or obesity or lung disease, you know, you will really have to be careful. But other people, as, as previously mentioned in the broadcast, may be able to return to work and return to school. I think we need to thread that needle between keeping the economy open and and being prudent. Yeah, and listen, I, I'm at the office today. I've got a daughter who goes back and forth in terms of school. Like we're seeing kind of some different different things as people kind of, you know, kind of dip into the water a little bit yeah. and find their comfort levels. I want to ask you, there's a story that Dow Jones Wall Street Journal put out, Ian, and it talked about how the COVID-19 death rate predictions have changed since March. And they talked back in, I guess, March, there were estimates ranging that in terms of how many Americans would die from COVID-19 from 81,000 to 2.2 million. And I do wonder, you know, how we need to, as Americans, be smart about some of these numbers, or is it really hard to gauge the impact? And I do wonder how you as clinicians kind of look at those projections, and if at all. Well, we do know that this virus is uh, potentially uh, much more lethal than, you know, the common cold, which in and of itself kills 50 or 60,000 people every year, uh, like auto accidents, 50 or 60,000 a year. Um, but this definitely is more insidious uh, and, and more difficult. And those projections, I think, we know it's 200,000. It could well go to three or 400,000, um, depending on, on how widespread the virus is. And this is a learn as you go. A lot of the initial treatments we were doing, this tocilizumab, the IL-6 inhibitor, you know, to d- take down cytokines early on, some data not that effective apparently here. Remdesivir just approved, as mentioned, you know, earlier on the broadcast, not the most effective antiviral. So, you know, this is really a learn as you go, and it's definitely more challenging. It's harder than it looks uh, <laughs> is really uh, what it comes down to. Um, but I do think the, the vaccine will be helpful. I do think those uh, uh, communities, mm-hmm. uh, certainly frontline healthcare workers and the elderly will be the first to get it, and then hopefully the rest of the country, and that should bend the curve. But this is a global pandemic. Yeah. The masks and social distancing are key. That will slow things. Um, 
but uh, yeah. ultimately the vaccine will hopefully be definitive. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Ian, thank you so much. Have a good and safe weekend. Dr. Ian Lospader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center, joining us on the phone in New York City. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, along with Paul Sweeney. And Paul, there's a couple of Business Week stories that caught our attention by our own Bloomberg News retail reporter, Jordan Holman. One is about Black-owned businesses that hope the benefits of the recent Black Lives Matter movement don't fade. The other is about is about the actress and creator behind HBO's Insecure. We're talking about uh, Issa Rae and her plan to support Black-owned businesses. It's a great coupling of stories. Um, Jordan joins us right now on the phone in Atlanta, and Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber on the phone from Brooklyn. A sign of the times, and people hope... Oh, I don't think we have Jill yet. All right, so hopefully we'll get to him in just a moment. But Jordan's with us, and she is responsible for these stories. They're great stories, Jordan. Let's talk about the one about Black-owned businesses. I mean... They have been able to, I guess, gain some momentum because of the Black Lives Matter moment um, and movement. Tell us a little bit about what you're hearing and, and what they hope to continue. Absolutely. So the Buy Black movement really um, reached a fever pitch this summer. And we knew anecdotally that um, black business owners were seeing just more demand. But when we went back and checked in, we just learned just how much. You know, one woman who owns a, uh, a towel company, she saw a 3,000% jump in sales during the summer and yes and that's coming from corporate um contracts that was coming from individuals and while it slowed down some people are still like coming to her just to do all of their gifting for the holidays so this is just a really critical time we're entering the holiday season but the buy black movement does look at like it has some more impacts that it can make so, Jordan, how do if you know a consumer wanted to support black-owned uh, businesses and stores and so on and so forth, what are some of the ways that they're going about this? Yeah, so we kind of have more tools than ever to discover uh, black-owned businesses. So Yelp and DoorDash, apps like that, they have sections that say, if you want to support black businesses, here are the restaurants and shops that are black-owned. So people are using those apps. Um, I talked to one woman. She has just created a whole spreadsheet of 600 brands of designers and and merchants who are Black-owned, and she's passing that list around to her family and friends saying, hey, if you're already going to buy holiday gifts this year, consider these places. I think it's really wonderful to see. So, I mean, is it likely to continue? I do wonder. The staying gosh, power. Yeah, the staying yeah. power. And Jordan, you know, my fingers are crossed because I feel like we have been here before and we all have to say we have to do better and then it fades away. I do hope something's different this time around. I do feel like that there is a raised awareness among the general public. Yeah, I would definitely say that. And that's one of the concerns that entrepreneurs have expressed to me that we've seen by black movements before. But this summer, they noticed that it was definitely more multiracial. Um, there is this perception sometimes that black owned businesses can only serve black consumers, but that's definitely not the case. Uh, we got some new data from the Harris poll that actually uh, looked into what shoppers said they would do this year. and We broke it down by race. So 61% of um, African-American shoppers said that they're more likely to purchase gifts from um, black owned shops this holiday season. Um, But when you look at other races, um, it's a bit lower. So for white consumers, that's 37% more likely Mm. than last year. Um, So it it does break down across race, but that's that's an increase from years before. People are more conscious. Yeah, I think I certainly, I mean, I kind of feel like 
I have been, but I also think I am even more so. And I certainly see it in my daughter who this is, you know, kind of a guiding force when it comes to where she shops. Um, these things are important. Um, Joel Weber is with us, Bloomberg Business Week editor. Joel, this is a great coupling of stories. We were just talking with Jordan about the Black-owned businesses and hoping that the boost that they've seen doesn't doesn't fade. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, there's a, there's a really great kicker on uh, one of Jordan's stories about, you know, this isn't just about holiday shopping or mm -hmm. buying back when, in general, it's economic injustice. And that's kind of what, what got us to this place where, where when we were looking at how, to, how do we want to talk about small business right now, obviously a sector that's been reeling, there is this, the, the movement, uh, the buy black movement that has really shown potential to kind of like realign sort of um, how consumers consume, I think. And, and that is sort of, you know, for all of the, craziness in the pandemic, kind of a, a rare bright spot. And Jordan, um, I mean, you, you got to do some other things too. And I, one of the people I wanted to talk to you, talk <laughs> you about was Issa Rae and, and what that conversation with her was like, because that's also a little Q&A that we did in this section. What, what's uh, Issa Rae up to? Yeah, I mean, Issa Rae is amazing. She does so many things. So we thought it would be great to speak to her about small businesses and specifically Black-owned businesses, because in this past season of Insecure, her show that she creates and stars in, there was a huge focus on Black-owned restaurants and shops in the um, in Inglewood, so in L.A. And so in addition to her showing that on the show on HBO that reaches everyone, even on her Instagram page, she's posting about, I love this Black-owned bookstore. We should have this. And she's, she has her own production company. So she is, um, she's living, you know, by black, but she is also benefiting from it as we consumers are consuming this content. And talk to us about the, she, she's also dabbling in production studios and even more than that. What, what are those initiatives looking like? Yeah, so she recently basically coupled together some production um, studios. So it's called Hooray Media, um, going off her name, Issa Rae. And one of her goals, she said, is to raise the profile of other artists of color. Um, and so that means like in the music industry, but then also film and TV. So basically just that creative space, because just like corporate America has been grappling with racial inequality, Hollywood is also um, having that conversation about how can we have more inclusion, specifically black inclusion. And Issa Rae is a very prominent person in Hollywood right now and is trying to also um, lift as she climbs. So, Jordan, what was her outlook into Hollywood? Because I know that's been a very, very tough area uh, for minorities in, in general. Yeah, she said that she is seeing this conversation happen and that there's a, she used the phrase, there's a concentrated effort to shift the power structure and establish legacy opportunities behind the scenes. Because um, in the past few years, we focused a lot on, like, who's on the screen, who's starring, who's getting, like, these awards. But this summer, there's definitely been like, who's the directors? Who's writing this? Right. Who's doing costume design? And so that's where she said this conversation is going. Um, and that kind of goes back to Hooray Media. She is also in the position now to make some of those decisions. Yeah, I think about the conversations we've had with John Hope Bryan, Operation Hope, and just saying that, you know, you've got to bring everybody into your supply chain, make it diverse. I mean, this is, you know, so that when you think about, you know, awarding a contract, you've really got to have make conscious decisions to be you know be deliberate be 
you know, specific and be diversified. And that's how you start to make a difference uh, in a big way. Um, great, great reporting as always. Bloomberg News retail reporter Jordan Holman joining us on the phone in Atlanta. Check her out on Twitter and certainly check out her stories. Uh, she's at Jordan Journals on Twitter. And Joel Weber, he's going to be back a little bit later on. We've got another really cool story in the magazine this week. Uh, he, of course, is editor of Bloomberg Business Week uh, and joining us uh, on the phone from Brooklyn. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. All right, so just about 10 days until the November presidential election in the U.S. Hard to imagine. It's just around the corner. Our top story, certainly at this hour, the elections and also last night's presidential debate. They will pay a price if I'm elected. They're interfering with American sovereignty. That's what's going on right now. They're interfering with American sovereignty. And to the best of my knowledge, I don't think the president said anything to Putin about it. While he was selling pillows and sheets, I sold tank busters to Ukraine. There has been nobody tougher on Russia than Donald Trump. Well, of course, that was uh, President Trump and uh, Joe Biden at last night's presidential debate. Let's get more on what we heard. Bloomberg News political contributor and Iona College professor of political science, Jeannie Zeno, with us again from New Rochelle, New York, uh, up in Westchester. Jeannie, so great to have you back with us, uh, Paul and myself. So a very different debate last night, right? Yeah, it absolutely was. And it's so good to talk to you. Um, it, you know, I, I think I went into it and, and I was concerned that we were going to have more of the same, a lot of interrupting despite the muted mics. And, you know, given sort of the tone preceding the debate, the release of the 60 Minutes tape and those kinds of things, I really was thinking we were going to have a repeat. <laughs> and it turned out to be a surprisingly substantive debate in which it was you know, they disagreed an awful lot. They certainly don't like each other, but you could actually hear what each one of them had to say, which was refreshing for a change. So, Jeannie, do you think the president did himself any good here with this performance last night? Certainly, again, much different than the uh, the prior debate. Yeah, you know, I think he did a much better job than the other debate. So there's that. I don't think he did enough to change the trajectory of this race, at least at this point. And part of that is not anything to do with what he did or didn't do. We've had about, I guess, you probably know the number better than I do because it's changing every moment, but about 40 million people vote already. And so, you know, very, very hard to have an impact on the race given that. And he did a fairly good job. Expectations were low, as I just said. I know mine were. So he didn't scream. He didn't interrupt as much. He wasn't as nasty. Um, Could he have changed a few hearts and minds? Yeah, but he has an uphill battle, and I'm not sure he got there. And the other thing is that, you know, Joe Biden didn't make any huge unforced errors. He was clear. He was concise. He had his arguments. He didn't get off track in terms of the personal stuff. So he did fine. You know, most, I guess, of the people watching said Joe Biden seemed to do a bit better than Trump. But either way, I think they both did about equal. And then from that perspective, I think Biden comes out a bit ahead here. Oh, OK, because I was thinking, was it a draw last night or so that's you're saying? Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. It was about a draw. But, 
you know, I hear some of these, you know, uh, you hear some of these people doing focus groups and stuff. I keep hearing maybe Biden had an edge to a certain extent, but whether it was a draw or an edge since Biden came in ahead, he really had to lose it to to really have Trump have an inroads here. And I don't think that happened. So check this out. Politica early this morning, Jeannie, I was just looking for the latest numbers. 47 million votes already cast nationwide in more than half the states. This is the U.S. Election Project. And as many, 100 million more or so to go. Uh, And as they say, yeah, the election is now being decided. Yeah, absolutely. And look at that number. Like, it it keeps ticking up. And, you know, it's one of the sort of silver linings of this pandemic um, is that it seems like we're going to have so many more people maybe get out to vote in this election or vote by mail or cast a ballot than we otherwise might have or we have had in recent presidential elections. So if that turns out to be the case, that's a very good thing in a very dark moment, of course. But it also means that the ability for either of these candidates or campaigns to sort of change things up as we move into the last week or last week and a half here becomes all that much tougher. That's kind of where I wanted to go, Jeannie. Uh, if the president, if you do believe the polls and the president is behind uh, by a reasonable amount, what would you suggest he do between now and Election Day? You know, I think he started on the right path last night. Um, I think what he's got to do is he's got to hone in on a couple things. Obviously, number one is turnout particularly among seniors and suburban women in these battleground states. So that's going to be critical, really hard for them to do because they have a huge deficit in terms of money. Um, The other thing I think he really needs to try to do is to make a case that I haven't heard them make much, but I think is fairly effective, that many Americans are concerned about having an all-democratic Washington, D.C. when it comes to issues like taxes and regulation, all the issues that you talk about on a daily basis, um, that there are, you know, not all Americans, but you have enough Americans who are still concerned about handing Washington, D.C. over either to the Democrats or the Republicans. So if he could make the case that if it looks like the Senate is going to go Democratic, which it very well could at this point, if Joe Biden wins, we have a blue wave, and that is going to mean potentially really major policy changes. And I think if he could say that um, and make that case or surrogates make it on his behalf, I think that would be effective. And Part of that is also to make the case that, you know, people do support his economic policies, and that's an effective message for him. And he tried to make that last night. I think he can make it more effectively. Those kinds of things, I think, if he could do in the last few days in these swing states, you might have some traction there. And then, of course, it's about getting local. So they did some of this last night, fracking and other issues that are of concern in in Pennsylvania and elsewhere at the local level. He can try to make some movement there as well. Yeah, I did think what uh, former Vice President Joe Biden had to say about kind of big oil (laughs) certainly caught my attention and made me kind of run to the Bloomberg and look at some of the energy names. GD, sit tight for a second. We've got to do a little bit of world and national news headlines, but we will come back to you in just a moment. Jeannie Zeno, I love, love talking with her, a political contributor at Bloomberg News, professor of political science at Iona College on the phone from New Rochelle. I have to say, truthfully, as a student, I don't know that I loved political science and I studied economics, but I love (laughs) poli sci now and I love politics now as an adult. 
I do, and it's um, you know you kind of go back and compare where we are now to uh, past generations and past yeah. uh, uh, you know times in this country. One one word, one word that always c- comes up is partisan. I don't care if it's in the Washington, Lincoln, yeah. you know Roosevelt. Everybody has said it's so partisan. The second and final, or the final debate is in the books. We're 11 days away from the election. Let's stick with the political discussion. We can do that with Jeannie Zeno, political contributor to Bloomberg News, professor of political science at Iona College. She joins us on the phone from New Rochelle, New York. Jeannie, I'm wondering here, you know, we've often been told that the Republican Party has become the party of Trump. Were President Trump to lose this election... What happens to the Republican Party? Where does it go? You know, I I think that we're starting to see signs as people sort of hedge their bets in terms of what they expect might happen in the next few weeks. We're starting to see signs of the divisions that were sort of part and parcel of the Republican Party, if you will, during the Obama era. I can remember distinctly when President Obama was elected in office in 2008-2009, there was some discussion in my circles, uh, meaning in you know political science circles, that perhaps the Republican Party was dead. Of course, that turned out not be the case. Um, but we did the next Republican president we got, of course, was unlike any other Republican president we had had before. And it raised the question of whether a traditional, quote unquote, Republican could win that office. Um, and so I think we're going to see a lot of that consternation go going forward if indeed Joe Biden is elected. And it concerns issues regarding deficit and debt, for instance, you know, these divisions in terms of people who, you know, are don't want this type of spending versus other people who who go on the other side. It concerns foreign policy. It concerns issues like drones. I mean, you can just keep going down the litany, regulation. And and so I think the Republican Party is going to be feeling its way for a while. And one of the real challenges I think they're facing in the shortish term, if you will, is that they have lost a lot of seats at the state and local level under Donald Trump. Hmm. Um, This isn't all about Trump, um, because they were having troubles before, but you look at the losses at the state and local level. You know, for us in New York, for instance, you know, the Republican Party is, you know, not a healthy party at the state and local level here. And that's true in many places um, in, in, you know, the Northeast, for instance, and in other parts of the country where they've lost seats. So they're going to have to gain their bench back. They're going to have to figure out how to win in a diversified, demographically diversified country going forward. And they're going to have to figure out who they are. Um, You know, they have had a lot of disagreements in the Republican Party since the fall of the Berlin Wall, which takes us back a while. But, um, you know, those kinds of things. Anybody below the age of so-and-so, I can't think, is uh, probably Googling (laughs) that genie right now as we speak. (laughs) Well, you know. true. So I'm so old. (laughs) What's Okay, I guess I just assume a younger generation is always going to be more liberal, but we know that's not the case. What what is the younger generation looking for when it comes to politics and leadership? Is it AOC? Is it a younger version of DJT? Like, who is it? Well, I, you know, I think about an issue of, like, the, the environment and climate, which is so important to younger people that I deal with on a daily basis. And these are not a lot of liberal young people. They are across the board. Um, and so I, I think you're right. I don't think they're necessarily looking for, you know, AOC. There are conservative-minded um, young people 
who are not, you know, really attracted to the Democratic Party, but who have felt frustrated by the Republican Party in some way. And so those are the kinds of people you need that local bench for to build them up so they can move their way into Congress like the Democrats finally did with AOC and and, and the squad, if you will. But that takes some time to do. And you got to start at the school board, the city council, the town council, those kinds of things. That's where you build those benches. And then they change the party. Does um, We spoke with Rick Davis yesterday who said that we could see, once we get through this election, in another four years, we could see Kamala Harris versus Nikki Haley. What do you think of that? Oh, I would just love that. <laughs> oh, too. my gosh. I would love that. And I think he's absolutely right. I think that is a distinct possibility. Um, and, you know, that is the kind of thing that would be attractive to many young people and older people in terms of more diversity in both of the parties, but in the Republican Party in this case in particular. Um, you know, and we've seen a lot of discussion, by the way, in the Republican Party just the last few days, as sort of silly as it sounds, but about some of these um, rappers and other people from Ice Cube and, and 50 Cent and Kanye West who are saying that we are not necessarily Democrats. And so, yeah. you know, there is diversity bubbling up there. The president last night was talking about African-American men. He said it over and over again. So there is diversity sort of bubbling up there, but they've got to make a play for it and they've got to appeal to these to these young people. Jeannie, just 30 seconds. If President Trump were to lose, who's going to represent the 62 million Americans that are his core that voted for him last time? You know, I think they're going to have to find it's such a good point. You know, there are some people who talk about other members of the Trump family, potentially his children picking up that mantle. But I really don't see anybody in the offing. I don't define Mike Pence potentially, but I don't define him in the context of Trump either. So I'm not sure we know the answer to that. And I think you may see some disaffected voters there. I kind of want class to continue, Jeannie. I'm just going to say, I'm just going to put it out there. Carol, yes. Yes, yes, yes. You're so great. Um, Thank you so much. Have a wonderful weekend. Bloomberg News political contributor and Iona College professor of political science, Jeannie Zeno, with us again from New Rochelle, New York. That's in Westchester. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Taking a look at these markets here, there's a, you know, it's a big issue. We've had a tremendous rally off the bottom when the pandemic first hit. And it's kind of a market rally that a lot of people just don't believe in when you put it against the backdrop of the economic data that we're seeing. And you hang your hat on some vaccine that is out there. So we all have to become scientists here. And um, it's just uh, when you think about it, the performance of this market is just extraordinary. Somebody who's seen a couple of cycles or two in the markets is Bob Dahl, chief equity strategist and senior portfolio manager for Nuveen. He joins us on the phone from Princeton, New Jersey. Bob, thanks so much for joining us here. Do you believe this market here or are you someone that says, you know, this is just a Fed reserve market, and I really don't trust it as far as I can throw it? 
Well, certainly the Fed has given us uh, a lot of firepower, and they remain at the ready, if you will, uh, uh, should they be needed in any significant way going forward. But I think, as you also hinted, the market has kind of stalled out. This is the first time since the March 23 bottom that we can go back and say the stock market's the same place it was two months ago. (laughs) So a lot of cross-currents in the market is, I think, I'm using the word churning, Mm-hmm. frustrating sideways, you know, it's up one day, down the next, and uh, not, not a whole lot of trend. We have to digest all, all that great gain we saw from that March 23 low. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, do you think the election is a big, big, um, I don't know, catalyst for the markets potentially moving here, Bob? Well, the elections always matter, and um, markets hate uncertainty, and that is an uncertainty on a long list of uncertainties at the moment. I think what the market is saying um, with all these uncertainties is I'm going to be shorter term in focus. And that means, okay, if it's a Democratic sweep, as the polls are suggesting, I, Mr. Market, can live with that because we'll get a bigger stimulus package. Isn't that good news? That allows the market to move higher because the economy and earnings are doing better. But if that's the myopia that the market's facing, somewhere down the line, I don't know, March, April, May, when, when it happens, the market's going to wake up and say, well, wait a minute, with this package also comes mm-hmm. higher taxes and some more regulation. I'm not sure I like that so much. So um, I, I think we have some toing and froing in front of us as it relates to the election. That's a technical term, right? Toing That's a CFA. Absolutely. <laughs> CFA level three term there. So, Bob, you know, what we've noticed is, uh, you know, a couple of camps out there uh, kind of duking it out on the equity markets. One says, hey, I'm sticking with these big cap, large cap tech names that have, you know, show t- really strong top line growth. Um, and then there's the other folks out there saying, I'm going to look to the other side of this whole thing. When I do, I see an economy that's going to start growing again. So therefore, I want to rotate into some cyclical names, maybe some small cap names. Do you have a vote there on – or how do you think sure. about it? Sure do. I, I think it's not an either or. It is a both and. But I lean toward have more cyclicals in your portfolio. During these two months where the broad-based stock market's gone nowhere – We've seen the dollar fall. We've seen treasury rates move up some. The curve steepen a bit. Higher commodity prices. Small cap stocks have done well. Today's another example of that. Emerging markets have done a little better. And economic sensitive sectors, the cyclicals you just referred to. So the market is saying, and I think there are a lot of fundamentals to suggest, that the largesse of policymakers, monetary and fiscal all around the world, are going to provide us with some grist for the mill, if you will, to, that the economy is going to be okay. Now, that's dependent on COVID behaving itself at some point and eventually a vaccine. So what's the biggest risk right now to the markets, Bob? And, you, you know, as, as Paul said, you know, you've seen a lot of different cycles. You've seen, you know, the markets when it looked really bleak, uh, whether it was after the financial crisis and other times. But what's, what's our biggest risk right now as investors? I think the biggest risk is what we can't control, and that is coronavirus. Um, yeah. Look, we are learning to live with it, having shut the economy down when we didn't know how to spell it a few months back. But now we're at a position where we're learning to live with it. But if it rears its ugly head too many places and too fast, things will slow down. People will go hide under the covers again, and that's not good for economic growth. That's the uncontrollable. 
there are a lot of other things too. Yeah. Um, you know, we're going to get another fiscal package. How long will the Fed be there? Valuations are are up a bit, and we mentioned the election uncertainties. Not to mention non-U.S. political issues, China, Brexit, and the like. So there's plenty for the market to focus on. Bob, do you what do you look at outside the U.S. market-wise? Anything that's getting your attention these days? So um, believing that um, the U.S. no longer has the interest rate advantage versus the rest of the world as we did for the last few years, and maybe not the growth advantage versus the rest of the world, we're going to get at some point a transition from the U.S. being the leader, seems like forever, to some non-U.S. markets doing better. For that to happen in a sustained basis, I do think we need a vaccine, and that will enable global growth to do better. And uh, look, the longer to your time horizon, the more the emerging markets make sense. If the globe's going to grow long term, the emerging market consumer is going to play a big role in that, and we'll get to that back to that sort of thinking. Yeah, and I'm just looking at the names like in your fund. I mean, it really is those household names. Uh, is there anything in particular maybe coming off of earnings right now that you think uh, maybe surprised you and thought, okay, maybe this is a smarter investment um, than maybe I was thinking about? Yeah, so, so I'd start by saying one of the things that bugs me <laughs> is earnings are coming in uh, less bad, i.e. better than expected. Right. And too many stocks are reporting a decent number and the stock's going down. Another sign the market's tired and just needs a break. Uh, so I still want stocks with good earnings and good cash flow, don't get me wrong. Uh, home builders, um, you know, that's a, the, the beneficiaries of COVID. Yeah. Home builders, parts of technology, parts of, parts of healthcare, uh, online uh, uh, shopping. Um, these, these trends are not over because COVID's not over. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Home builders, normally in an economic malaise, you'd see them down. But because everybody <laughs> moving out of the cities and tapping into the housing market, you've really seen uh, that group take off. Correct. Coupled with the very low interest rates, it's, yeah, it's, a, natu- exactly. it's a natural place. And uh, those companies are doing well. All right, Bob Dahl, you stay safe. Thank you so much. Bob Dahl, Chief Equity Strategist, Senior Portfolio Manager at Nuveen, on the phone from Princeton, New Jersey. Those home builders, uh, Paul, are up about 29% so far this year. Yeah, it's been uh, a combination, as Bob was suggesting, yeah. uh, low interest rates, record low interest rates, and then this pandemic-induced, <laughs> I guess, exodus from the cities. Got to go buy a house. I can tell you, in the town I live in here in New Jersey, it is hot as a pistol. It's really as hot as it's been since before the financial crisis. Time to sell. I'm just going to say, yep. if you own a home. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.